Look, it's a Thursday. That means it's Plan B with Rebecca Davis of Daily Maverick. Hello, Rebecca. How are you doing? Hello, Mike. I'm very glad to speak to you today because I was hoping to turn the tables and quiz you about something you wrote for once. Yeah, I was How waffling on. I was Maverick waffling today. on on Daily Maverick uh, today about the Italian elections. What do you want to ask me about? There was two ideas in there I thought were very interesting, and you suggested they might be applicable to South Africa. The first was about coalitions and the kind of publicizing thereof before voters go to the polls. Which is what they do in Italy. If you vote for a party, you also can vote for a coalition. They say in advance, these are the people we will form a coalition with, because they know that nobody's going to win a majority. So they do know that there's going to be a coalition, and you can see the coalitions in advance. I kind of love that idea. I mean, you say rightly that someone like Helen Zilla would object that you know, parties need to negotiate on the fly, kind of in the moment and be open to flexibility and the rest of it. But as you say, that's when we end up with the DA in bed with the EFF and you go, my goodness, that's not at all what I envisaged. Wouldn't there be a real argument there for transparency if our parties had to say in advance, okay, these are my hard nose and these are the people, even if it wasn't a formal thing on the ballot paper, if there was at least some obligation for them to fess up in advance about who they'd get into bed with. I love that, John. And the second thing was about reducing the number of elected politicians. Yeah. Such a simple notion. Because what it does is it makes the threshold higher to get into parliament, which means we have fewer single-member or two-member parties. So the Italians have slashed by one-third both houses, the number of politicians, in the hope of having fewer parties and therefore more stable coalitions. It's a very sort of logical bit of mathematics. It is logical. I wonder how how we work out the number of MPs that are adequate or appropriate for a country of our size. I mean, the argument, I suppose, is that there should be enough to guarantee, although it doesn't happen very often, if at all, some notion of kind of personal accountability towards your constituency. Um, I suppose some people might argue that if you are cutting that number, then the idea of having somebody accountable to you in any way, some kind of elected representative, gets even more far-fetched. But, I mean, I just love the idea of having less of them around. I mean, I think a lot of us could just really get behind the idea of paying fewer MP salaries. There's just something very intuitively appealing about that. All right, let's talk about uh, uh, South Africans in load shedding. We're all looking maybe at greener pastures saying, uh, are there places which don't have this? Uh, You're making the point that uh, we need to think carefully about that. Well, I mean, one doesn't want to rejoice in other countries' um, miseries either. But a very interesting piece in, in The Guardian this week, making the point that the quality of life for ordinary people in countries like the UK and the US is really dropping drastically. The US coming 41st in the UN Sustainable Development Index, which basically means, as they point out, what the quality of life is like for ordinary people. In other words, do you have access to drinking water? What are the maternal um, health metrics like. I actually want to read this, uh, Mike, because it's, it, it was kind of so striking to me. What do you call a country where nearly one in 10 adults have medical debt, a broken bone can boot you into bankruptcy, a city of more than 160,000 residents recently had no safe drinking water for weeks, life expectancies dropped for the second year in a row, and poor people sell their blood plasma in order to make ends meet. That country is the USA, a country also where the maternal mortality rate of black women in the capital is twice as high as for women in Syria. 
Then you look at somewhere like um, the UK, where an analysis in the Financial Times last week found that on present trends, the average Slovenian household will be better off than British households by 2024, two years' time, and the average Polish family will be better off by the end of the decade. You know, these countries, the UK and the US, are the ones traditionally always held up as, you know, the epitome of prosperity, what safe and prosperous and dignified living looks like. And as people are increasingly pointing out, actually what these countries are are kind of poor countries which happen to have a lot of very, uh, 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 a small proportion of very, 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 very rich people there. But for ordinary Joes, people like you and I, and for people much poorer than us, Mike, those countries are not looking so tasty either. And I'm sure if you have friends in the UK, you have heard horror stories about the way prices are skyrocketing in there. Anyway, just something to help us feel a little bit more positive, yeah. perhaps, about... I, 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 think, I think a good dose of schadenfreude is very useful now and then. I think, I think we all need it. There's no, it was interesting. Anne Crotty, writing in Financial Mail, said the same thing. She's in Ireland at the moment. She said Europeans are in an absolute panic-stricken state that they are going to mm. have energy cuts. Uh, because of everything that's happening. And as she said, in South Africa now, we just shrug and move on. And she said that they're sort of looking at us and saying, how do you deal with it? Teach us. So maybe we've got it. We've got something we can be experts in, how to handle no energy. Resilience. That resilient. famous national quality of ours, much resented. Uh, All right. Tell me about, I'm intrigued by this. New Zealand introducing a new plain language law. I love this so much, Mike. It, it, it's a new piece of legislation which requires government by law to communicate clearly and concisely with the public, aimed obviously at just cutting out those jargonistic press statements, notifications that none of us can really make sense of. Now, there's been some quibbling about it. The opposition says it's going to slow things down because I don't know why they'll have to kind of get in new editors or people who can speak plain English if any exist in government. But, I mean, I was thinking about it because, for instance, the current load shedding crisis. I mean, my colleague Tim Cohen wrote a great article a few days ago, or yesterday, I think it was, about how one of the issues is that we don't actually know what the real problem is at ESCOM because it's never clearly communicated. Is it a management problem? Is it fundamentally an infrastructure problem? You know, this is something that is so obvious. It should be so obvious. We should all know the answer to that offhand. And yet we really don't. Even the language we use around load shedding is inherently obfuscatory, load shedding in yep. itself, when we should just be calling them, of course, power cuts or whatever. This week I was writing about the ability of the asset forfeiture unit to confiscate assets and retrieve money from bad guys. And the, the responses I received to very ordinary questions, you know, like, how, what, how do you go about doing this, were written, down, uh, Mike, in, sorry, I keep doing that to you, were written in such jargonistic technical language that it took me about 45 minutes just sitting here to translate one or two sentences. How is it possible that we as the public are supposed to have even the slightest understanding of what is going on in the government that we elect and we pay for if we cannot understand what they're saying? I think if only for our own peace of mind to be communicated with in a clearer way would bring a great deal of comfort. Then again, many would say, I suppose, there's a good reason why government doesn't want to communicate clearly a lot of the time. I just have a lovely thought of someone being arrested for using jargon uh, oh. under the under the new New Zealand law, someone being dragged off in handcuffs for, for talking drivel. All right, finally, something that made you laugh. Uh, a lot makes you laugh. You laugh easily, Rebecca, but what got you chuckling this week? I'm a very discerning laugher, actually, Mike. The first research looking at the response of unborn babies to different flavors has just been released by Durham University in the UK. 
Basically, what they did is, I mean, technology is so incredible these days that they can actually discern facial expressions on fetuses in the womb. So they got mothers to swallow different flavored capsules, and then they looked at the fetus's facial expressions. And it was, <laughs> I'm laughing already, it was unequivocal. When the mothers were swallowing kale, that well-known leafy superfood capsules, the fetuses almost immediately adopted crying faces. <laughs> they just started weeping, basically, because they hated that kale so much. On the other hand, when the mothers were eating a delicious sweet carrot, they were chuckling. They were, their, their faces lit up with laughter, Mike. I mean, it didn't specify whether they tried feeding the mothers, you know, chocolate chip cookies or whatever. Yep. But I think we all understand that there's an innate disgust now proved by science from humans towards the taste of kale, and I find that quite satisfying. I'm somehow. absolutely with you on that. I find it bizarre, inedible stuff. Rebecca, as always, absolute <laughs> pleasure to have you on. Thanks very much. Rebecca Davis of Daily Maverick there with Plan B. She'll be back same time next week.